Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in your presence today, we confess, we, we know that you are unseen. We can't see you. We can't touch you. And so, God, we pray today that you would cross the distance between us and speak to us. Speak to us in ways we can see and understand, like, like through your written word today, God. And speak to us in ways we can't see or explain straight through the connection that you have to our hearts. Speak to us today, dear Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we are asking the question, is it true that what you see is what you get? When some people say what you see is what you get, they mean that they're hiding nothing. They have no hidden agendas. But at the same time, when some people say what you see is what you get, they mean that people are what you see and nothing more. That position could be called materialism or maybe more appropriately philosophical materialism. Now, philosophical materialism is different than being materialistic. When we say that someone is materialistic, we mean that they want to get and to have and to hold stuff things. But philosophical materialism is different than saying that someone is materialistic. Let's get a definition of materialism. It's the belief that everything is or can be explained in relation to matter. Everything is or can be explained in relation to matter. Now, what does that mean? It means that particles are the real things, and everything can be explained in relationship to particles and the natural forces that act on them and between them. And so we want to ask the question, is it true? Is it true that what you see is what you get? Because you understand this has been a foundational and bedrock teaching in our culture for centuries. Is it true? And if not, what is true? And if something else is true, how do we build our lives based on a different truth? This is a fundamental question for our culture. What if what you can see is not all there is? In the Old Testament, in the book of Job, we meet a man, and we see him first and foremost on earth. And as we look at the man Job in the Old Testament on earth, there are things that we see. The Bible calls him an upright and righteous man. We discover, too, about Job in the Old Testament. He's successful. He's wealthy. And he has 10 children, and they are happy. And we learn that, that Job follows the commands of God to the best of his ability, and he worships God. That's, that's Job on earth. Is that all there is to Job and to what's happening in Job's life? 
In the book of Job, chapter one, verses six through 12, we discover that there's more to what's going on with Job and it's happening in heaven, in the heavenly realms. Job chapter one, verses six through 12, read. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro, on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You have Blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, as we look here in Job chapter 1, we discover that heaven, the spiritual realm, is filled with spiritual beings. Heaven is the spiritual realm, and in heaven, we discover that there are multitudes of spiritual beings. We meet, first of all, God. We know that God is spiritual. God is a spiritual being, and He is in the heavenly or spiritual realm. Then we see, too, that Satan is a spiritual and powerful being. And Satan, saying that Satan is in heaven means simply, in this case, that Satan exists primarily in the spiritual realm. Satan is primarily spiritual and exists primarily in the spiritual realm. We discover as well that there are ones in Job chapter 1 called the sons of God. Who were they? They are likely angelic beings, and they are likely advisors to and counselors to God. But if you continue to read the Bible, you discover that heaven is filled with all kinds of spiritual beings. The Bible goes on to say that in the spiritual or heavenly realm, there are demons, and there are beings called cherubim and seraphim, among others. And so we realize that just as the physical world is populated with physical beings, there is a spiritual realm that God has populated with spiritual beings. We discover in Job chapter 1 that what happens in that spiritual heavenly realm can affect, impact what happens here on earth. We see that there's a discussion in heaven that leads to a decision. You see, the Satan goes into heaven as a prosecuting attorney, bringing charges against God's people. He stands before the Lord God, and God says to Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is upright and righteous and blameless. And Satan says, well, yeah, of course he is. You've, you've protected him. You've given him everything he wants. Of course he's righteous and blameless and loves you. But if you remove your protection... We'll see when he's pressed whether he'll follow you or not. And so the Lord God allows 
Satan to test Job, to press him, to see how Job will respond when he is pressed. Now, this raises all kinds of theological questions, and I don't want to address all of the theological questions that brings up today. What I want you to see is that what happens in the heavenly realm impacts what happens in this earthly realm that we live in. And so if you ask the question, is it true that what you see is what you get? Is it true that particles and natural forces are all that exist? The answer is clearly no. There is something more, something that we cannot see. As we continue into the New Testament, we discover that what we can't see matters. The Apostle Paul addresses this in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, we discover Paul telling us that what's going on in the heavenly realm is a spiritual struggle that's going on around you and me. In verses 10 and 11, we read, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, let's start right where he ends in verse 11. We discover that Satan, the devil, is scheming and plotting against creatures in the physical realm. Satan is plotting against human beings, particularly against those who are disciples of Jesus, which means that there is a struggle going on over us, and there is one who is seeking to harm and destroy us. And the question is, will we be able to stand? And Paul says when it comes to this struggle, there's God. God has supernatural power, and that supernatural power belongs to God by virtue of his nature. That's who he is. But then there's us. We don't possess supernatural kinds of strength. It's not ours by nature. And so Paul says we've got to accept strength and protection, spiritually speaking, from God. It's given from God to us, and it becomes like an armor to us. And the question becomes, when God gives us his supernatural strength and power, will we accept it in order that we might stand against the schemes of the devil? Or will we ignore it, and will we be unprepared? Paul goes on to say that in the spiritual realm, there are many levels of unseen things going on around us that we would want to know about because they impact us. He goes on in verse 12 to tell us about some of these layers. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, when it comes to flesh and blood, that's a struggle we understand, a struggle that we can be involved in and have a reasonable chance of succeeding in. But Paul says there are things beyond those flesh and blood things, things that you cannot see. He says there are rulers. Those are the ones with the power to influence us, even though we cannot see them. There are authorities, and they're the ones who are in the position to influence us, even though we cannot see them. And when it comes to rulers and authorities, then we have those with the power and the position to influence us, even though they are unseen. They may be in heaven, and they may be on earth. The critical thing is that they are unseen by us, 
and we need to be protected from them. At the same time, Paul goes on to talk about the powers over this dark world, and as he does so, he is now beginning to talk clearly about spiritual beings, and those with power over this dark world are spiritual, malevolent beings who operate in the physical realm. He's saying they exist. And as he goes on, he continues to talk about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what he's saying is that every spiritual evil that exists in the physical realm, its native home is in the spiritual realm. It comes from the spiritual realm to here. These things are unseen. They're layers to an unseen world. Rulers, authorities, powers over this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Paul says, because of all these things, particularly disciples of Jesus Christ, should be protected, should be armored and armed for the struggle that is going on around us. And he describes what that looks like in verses 13 through 17, where he writes, "'Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore.'" having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God." Now, at some point, we'll come back to these pieces of armor and armament, and we'll discuss them in detail. But today, what I want you to see is that in this spiritual struggle, armament is given to us by God for the express purpose that in the midst of and in the face of the devil's schemes, we might stand. And then as he goes on into verses 18 through 20, Paul says in Ephesians that there is a a prayer connection between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. There is a conversation going on back and forth between us and the spiritual realm, us and God through prayer, and that conversation matters and changes things. In verses 18 through 20, he continues, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." So Paul is saying here that there is a conversation going on between us in the physical realm and God in the heavenly or spiritual realm, and that conversation, that connection matters deeply, matters deeply. It changes things here. So what we discover is that the whole notion that what you see is what you get is false. We are far more than simply what you see. We are what you see, and there is what you don't see. What you don't see matters as well. In fact, it is naive to think that what you see is what you get, because when we think that what you see is all that you get, then it leaves us unaware. 
unprepared and unprotected in the face of spiritual evil. And that means that we stay in the vice grip of Satan, the enemy of God and of God's people. But many people live as if it's true that what you see is what you get. Many people live as if what you see is what you get. In fact, the what you see is what you get life is built upon a narrative. I want to share with you today the materialistic narrative about the cosmos. This is the materialist story about how things come into being. And that materialist narrative starts with no one. Because you see, in the beginning, there was no one. In the beginning, there was stuff or energy or darkness. The materialist narrative of the cosmos says nothing about a one who has purpose and and reason in creating. Instead, chapter 2 tells us that everything came about because of chance. There is no purpose. There is no reason. Things came about as a result of chance or the sum total of natural laws and forces. That's chapter 2. Things just happened. Chapter 3 of the materialist narrative about the cosmos is stuff. And in this materialist narrative, we exist on a timeline. And that line may be long, but we exist on that timeline as a segment, a short segment, a segment that begins and a segment that ends. And that short segment of our lives is the time in which we have the opportunity to get, to have, and to hold stuff and to influence stuff. Stuff is chapter three, but it leads us to chapter four, which is nowhere. Because in the materialist narrative of the cosmos, we who have a beginning have an ending. And when that ending comes, we die, and there is nothing left of us except people's memories and the things that we have influenced during our short segment of life. We die, according to this narrative, and there is nothing more. Author and theologian and philosopher C.S. Lewis realized what a powerful tool this materialist narrative of the cosmos would be in the hands of Satan, and he wrote about it in the book, The Screwtape Letters. It purports to be a series of letters back and forth between two demons, between the demon Screwtape and his nephew, Wormwood. Screwtape is trying to help Wormwood, who's a junior demon, learn how to do his job. And so Screwtape writes to Wormwood, his nephew, to advise him on how to tempt people away from God to Satan and to eternity in hell. And he tells Wormwood that one of the best things that he can do is to keep people's minds fixed on the here and now. Screwtape describes life as a stream of events, and he tells Wormwood that human beings get caught in this stream of events. But from time to time, human beings' attention is drawn upward to bigger questions, to the universe and to God. 
And when human beings' minds are drawn to the universe and to God, they are drawn toward God and away from Satan. And so Screwtape tells Wormwood that he's got to keep human beings' minds focused in the wrong place. He says in chapter one, your business is to fix his, that is your victim's, attention on the stream. Keep them thinking about everything here and now that they can see and touch on this material world. In chapter one, Screwtape goes on to tell Wormwood that in his own days as a junior demon, he had a victim that he was working on. And this victim did not believe in God, was a convinced atheist, but There were times in his life when his mind would begin contemplating the universe and be drawn toward God and be on the verge of belief, and that is when Screwtape jumped into action. He says, I was struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. Because you see, the materialist narrative draws us inward, and it says, what you see is what you get. What you see is all that there is. Focus your attention here and now, and that is a powerful hold that the enemy can have in our lives. And so what does this lifestyle look like when people are practically living? I want to give you three principles today of the what you see is what you get life. And principle number one is get stuff here. Now, I told you at the beginning that philosophical materialism and being materialistic are two different things. The interesting thing is there's a high correlation between the two. Because most people who are philosophical materialists are very consumed with materialism, being very materialistic themselves, because they have this urge to get, to have, to hold, to control, to change, to enjoy here and now. Why? Because the things that one gets and has and hold and control has the ability to shape our identity if what you see is what you get. If what you see is all you get, we are defined by our stuff by our things and by the opinions of other people. So we get stuff, things, people, and reputation here. Not only that, but we live for now. In the balance of the Screwtape letters, Screwtape continues to advise Wormwood on how to keep his victim away from God and in the hands of Satan. And he he has him repeatedly causing this victim to live for now. He causes him to get embroiled in conflicts with his family, in, in worries about his friends, in worries about his job, in worries about his own safety. Keep the person living for now. And this is where even disciples of Jesus will make desperate mistakes because we say that we live for Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, we have to look at our priorities and we see what do we prioritize instead? We prioritize our careers. We over-prioritize our families. We prioritize our experiences. We live for now, despite the fact that we believe that we exist for eternity. Live for now. It's a principle of the what you see is what you get life. And the final principle, the what you see is what you get life, is stay busy. Stay busy. 
And if you look at your own life and you say, hey, I get up in the morning and I am already counting the seconds of my day that I have wasted. If you're constantly thinking, I must rush to get my kids to their next activity. I constantly have to get to the next experience. I'm constantly consumed with my device. I'm constantly consumed with activity. We can say that we live for Christ and that we are living for eternity, but it seems that we're living instead the what you see is what you get life. So if this is what that life looks like, we have to ask the question, what should we do instead? And I want to suggest to you really three fundamental things that we should do instead. The first thing is we should repent because the idea that what you see is what you get is a lie. When we say that what you see is what you get and we mean that what you see is all that you get and there is nothing more, that idea is false. It's false. The Bible tells us it's false. It's false. It does not have the ability to guide us rightly in life. And so what we do in repenting of it is we drop that idea and we recognize in dropping it that we are letting go of an idea that does not give us the right basis for living our lives. But to repent means more than we just drop it. We drop it and in dropping it, we recognize that we have done more than just own a lie. We've done more than just make a mistake. In owning the what you see is what you get narrative, we've sinned against God. And so in dropping that lie, we confess to God that we have sinned against him and ask his forgiveness. But to drop it to ask forgiveness is not the end of the movement of repenting. As we drop it and ask for forgiveness and accept forgiveness, we walk away from that lie. Instead, we walk toward Jesus Christ. We repent of the idea that what you see is what you get because it's a lie. Secondly, we believe. The gospel is what we believe, and that gospel grounds us in truth instead. You see, the gospel casts an alternate vision to the materialist narrative of the cosmos. The gospel tells us what is true, what life is really like. The gospel becomes a ground, a foundation for our lives, and we construct an entirely different life based on the gospel. So what does the gospel say from creation to conclusion that is different than the materialist narrative of the cosmos? Well, the gospel begins in creation to conclusion with chapter one, which is creation, symbolized by a circle to remind us of the world that God made. God created the world and everything that is in it, and God did so on purpose. God meant to do that. When God created the world, he created everything in it, and that includes you and me, and he did so because he loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. This true narrative, the gospel, has started off in an entirely different way. But then in chapter 2, it's called brokenness. It's symbolized by a line down the middle. We recognize that we have sinned. We joined Satan in his rebellion against God. We disobeyed God. And the line reminds us 
that when we disobeyed God, we broke our relationship with God. We cut off our connection from us in the physical realm to God in the spiritual realm. And we keep trying to repair this brokenness and reestablish that connection, but we can't do it on our own. Chapter 2 of the gospel from creation to conclusion is brokenness. Then chapter 3, symbolized by drawing the cross, is Jesus. And here it's important to realize that Jesus is the perfect, fully spiritual being and simultaneously the perfect, fully physical being come together in one person, uniting the physical and spiritual realms in a being, a person. And God placed all of our sin on Jesus. Jesus died to pay the price for our sin, and he rose again from the dead victorious over sin, death, and evil, and Satan. And because he did, when we accept the forgiveness that he offers to us, we have our connection with God, the connection between the physical and spiritual realms renewed. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Can you imagine that? And then in chapter 4 of the church, we, we have a down arrow to symbolize the fact that God sends the Holy Spirit to us that we might receive new life and new purpose, and we have an up arrow to remind us that in the church together, we live a new life for a new purpose, for God's glory which leads us to the final chapter, chapter 5, which is a, a crown to remind us that Jesus is our risen king. He is coming again, and we will live eternally with him. You see, we don't come from nowhere, no one, and go to nowhere. We come from someone, and we go to somewhere. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ from creation to conclusion, and we believe the gospel because it grounds our lives, which brings us, though, to the third thing that we do, which is we follow. We trade in the lie for the gospel. We trade in the lie for the gospel. If you're living according to that materialist narrative of the cosmos, if you have lived by the beliefs of philosophical materialism, if you have lived the what you see is what you get life, I, I can't understand that. From a distance, it looks thin and, and shallow and difficult and, and sad. And the gospel brings richness and peace and life. You have the opportunity to have purpose and meaning and to be loved by God. So I implore you, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, trade in that lie and every other lie that you're living by. And instead, take the truth of the gospel. Take life in Jesus Christ. As we think about following, though, there is something that we all do, and that is reassess and redirect your priorities. Reassess and redirect your priorities. By reassess, I mean we have to ask the question, am I living by the what you see is what you get lie? 
Because if, if I fundamentally believe the what you see is what you get lie, it's going to come out in my life. It's going to come out in me living for here and, and getting for here and staying too busy. I will constantly be living for here and now and being out of control in my life. If I have believed that lie, it is showing up in my life. Ask, assess, am I living? The what you see is what you get lie. And if I am, which I probably am, then it leads me to want to redirect my priorities. Because if I know that I was created by God on purpose, if I know that Jesus died to pay the price for my sin, if I know that he has risen, then it's going to change the way that I live my life. It's going to change my priorities. If Jesus Christ is risen and King and coming and Lord, and He is, then it's going to change how I spend my time, my energy, and my money. Philosophical materialism is a lie. What you see is not what you get that what you see is what you get is not true. Creation as God made it is far bigger, far richer than what we can see. So let you and I redirect our priorities and live for Jesus Christ and for his kingdom. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.